Hey folks and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching. Both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... High Noon, directed by friend Zyman. The Wild Bunch by Sam Peckinpah. We have newly released They Clone Tyrone by Jewel Taylor. Barbie by Greta Gerwig. And finally, Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. Vincent Daly, how we doing, buddy? Tommy boy, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay on me or my, on my end, this side of the table. <laughs> how was your work at week of movies? Because this is a big one. We have Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. We have westerns coming in. Yeah, yeah. We have a complete surprise I wasn't even aware of coming in. <laughs> yeah. They cloned Tyrone. Um, yeah. a big weekend. Though. I'll tell you what, I was extremely happy with this week. Uh, Barbenheimer did not disappoint, and I was able to find some excellent films to round out the week. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, I was I was really reflecting on this week with my with my note writing process i don't know last year my favorite week was that crimes of the future episode this year yeah. i think it's this week really uh, this is a big week so far so. at least i'm uh, sure halfway sure. through the year right we saw scorsese's talk, film though. we still have dune 2 so you know there, there would be others but the how how barbenheimer was a wild combination and yeah. was able to find just like other good films to p- pair with it uh, i was really happy this week yeah this weekend so they were kind of expecting to be potentially both do over a hundred million, mm. and I, I was I would have been surprised. Like I was kind of surprised to hear that about Barbie, but could see it. Sure, Christopher Nolan. I was thinking that it would almost be a little bit of a stretch, just mm. knowing what this film is. I feel like mm. how it's tracking a little Three bit. Hours less slots, and sure enough, I mean that it only ended up making eighty two and a half million, right. but it's still eighty two and a half million. And yeah. then Barbie opening weekend of one hundred and sixty million, yeah, like yeah. blew away expectations. It's all it's going to continue to be big. I think I, I know. Yeah, I, there there was there's something of a of a cultural impact with it. Big um, time. Yeah, I went opening night on Friday. Oh. And and uh, I mean, it was almost a Rocky Horror Picture Show type of event. Everyone was wearing pink. People were selling pink ha- uh. cowboy hats outside the theater. There was a uh, it, it, it was a more of an event to go to, which uh, which is great. I, I wasn't quite <laughs> expecting it. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't quite, expecting it either. But at this point, with how much they spent on marketing, I knew it was going to do well. <laughs> right. But um, and by the way, how did the movie break down? The all the IMAXs mm. were locked down by Oppenheimer, correct? Uh, yes, yes. I think Barbie had the Dolby's. All the IMAXs were Oppenheimer. That's how they dished it out. And, okay. and you know, Lord knows where Dead Reckoning Part 1 went. I feel uh, so if, bad. If anyone got their lunch eaten, it's uh, it's old Tom Cruise. And you can kind of see it coming. Yeah. Well, that's also why he wanted it released July 4th, don't mm. forget. And mm. he couldn't, so he was trying to get at least two weeks in IMAX. Which makes sense. But they didn't let him do the release on July 4th for whatever reason, which is kind of a bummer because that shot, Sound of Freedom is still killing it. Right. It's still third. I know, I know. 
Matt D, uh, producer, let me know about it. He said, "Hey, you're you're gonna be covering covering this." So we probably should at this point. It's it's yeah, it might be rushing. It might be catch up uh, that we can get to because it's still number three best film. I know, unreal. Port deck reckoning. I want deck reckoning. I want. Mission Possible do a little bit better at least. I know, Make even, its money. even though I think we were both a tiny bit lackluster on Dead Reckoning. Um, it was a good movie. Still a good action. There, there was we had our kind of our nitpicks, if you will. Yeah. Um, I don't want to see it kind of fall on its face. No, and God well. forbid, you know, even jeopardize part two. You <laughs> well, know? Part two is happening, <laughs> even with the strike. Yeah. Okay, so let's just. We get- are saving <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll jump into it right away. This is our start of Western Month, and it's the. <laughs> And it's the end of Western Month. (laughs) Recording this on the 26th. Uh, What a great month it's been. But yeah, you managed to get two Westerns watched here. Let's start with it right away. We're back in 1952. These are all big name Westerns here. This is High Noon, directed by Fred Zeinman. And I'm sure a lot of people maybe haven't seen it, but a lot of people know the name. Mm, Yes. Or even just the concept High Noon. It all comes from this. Right. So uh, Let's get into it. How was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, High Noon is considered one of the greatest Westerns of all time. And one of my favorite things to do on the podcast is put that to the test. This won four Oscars, including Best Leading Role and Best Editing uh, for the year of 1952. Losing out to Best Director to John Ford's The Quiet Man, uh, a fellow heavy hitter Western director. And won Best Picture to Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. So, heavy hitter year uh, for 52. Yeah. Big actors, Gary Cooper's in it, Grace Kelly's in yep. it, Lloyd Bridges, Jeff Bridges' dad Oh, wow. in it. Yep. Good catch. Wow. I didn't, <laughs> didn't even know. I, I need you didn't realize it in an airplane need... <laughs> either. He surprised you in an airplane. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's it's probably one of the older Westerns we have covered uh, in this time period as well. Uh, I know we have classics like Stagecoach, 1939 rated, but 52 is still pretty early for what will be the dozens of Westerns produced every year moving forward, basically until the 70s, uh, yeah. John Wayne's included. So, yeah. Uh, in High Noon, Gary Cooper plays a stern, or the stern, Marshal Will Kane, who is in our opening scene getting married and about to hang up his badge. Uh, all of this is put on ice when a gang of Kane's previous convicts show up to town without a noose around their necks. Their leader recently was let free and arriving at the train station at high noon. Uh, this can only mean trouble, and Kane is the only man that can stop this, despite about to hang up his badge and go on uh, his way with his new Quaker wife, uh, and uh, that is in, in itself a, st- a race against time to get everything all settled up so he can still kind of get on his way. Honestly, one of the best qualities of the screenplay is how the outlaws get untangled. Maybe not the outlaws specifically, but how the the drama of the town gets untangled. Kane has a complicated past with the town, and everyone seems to have a perspective on it, uh, and it's not really told to us. Uh, the entire film is waiting for High Noon. Mm, right, right. So we don't even really get another action sequence until the, the very end of the film, and how that is filled up is not wasted time. I wouldn't even call it boring for even, like, you know, a black and white, you know, 52 film. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because it keeps you engaged in kind of un- untangling a really messy relationship Kang Keen has with the town. Everyone seems to have 
everyone seemed to have an opinion on uh, maybe he shouldn't have cleaned up this town. Maybe this town mm. was better with the outlaws. Uh, uh, for instance, the hotel. Well, I was a lot busier before Kane cleaned up this town. Uh, there are things that are not told and left to unpack as we're kind of waiting around. And it's really a brilliant screenplay for that reason. And, and for two reasons, too, for, for our kind of theory that the 50s are a terrible decade for movies <laughs> yep, is because yep. things are one spoon fed and too happy-go-lucky yep. and it's just way too cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. That's nice that if it's going to be slower that you're unpacking actually a decent yeah, story then. Absolutely. Yeah. Some don't mind that Wild West. Some like that profit that they could get off of outlaws and being a wild town. So I think there's an interesting subversion in how a lawful marshal is seen and how we expect him to be, but in fact everyone's opinion is different and right, yeah. leaves him kind of out to you know hanging out to dry uh, when it comes around to him kind of rallying up a posse to deal with these outlaws come high noon. So uh, everyone is up to speed on this and has perspective, except Kane's wife, played by Grace Kelly. And I, I think again, uh, in a brilliant move, she acts as the audience's eyes, figuring out this messy past. Mm. This is not just your cookie cutter, uh, he gets the posse to get, uh, like a tombstone. You know, it's not just, right, yeah. these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, they're going at it. There's a little bit more of a disparagement of Kane's past with the with the town, which I, I thought was really, really great. It's a good aspect to throw in there. Absolutely. It was layered in a great way, and, you know, on top of Kane, us discovering, he's not really the most flawless marshal we expect him to be. We explore that past through character relationships rather than just being spoon-fed or told. So, of course, the names Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly invoke uh, you know classic Hollywood style but looking back at their filmography uh, I'm gonna be honest folks I haven't really seen anything with them in no. uh, you know yeah. I mean I, I know uh, <laughs> trying hard to look like Gary Cooper you know and uh, put on the Ritz but uh, that's about it and maybe you know that robs some credibility for me but honestly the performances weren't exactly the highlight for me here uh, despite the best actor win for Gary Cooper I thought mm-hmm. they were all good but I wasn't like really ecstatic with it we do get a really young Lee Van Cleef, who, in addition yeah. to being a podcast favorite, will go on to star in countless iconic westerns. Yeah. I would say where this film it was lacking, The Wild Bunch was not lacking, and it's in the villains, it's in the, in, it's in the criminal mm-hmm, element. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the posse of gunslingers here is just kind of lacking some menace. They basically show up in the beginning, they stay at the train station, looking tough, and that's about it okay. <laughs> uh, until the very end. You know, like uh, we've commented, especially with all the blockbuster popcorn we've been reviewing on the podcast, show me the menacing. Show me why they're evil. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this was missing that, despite how cool as ice Lee Van Cleef included, they look just oh, yes. waiting around. He just needs to be on screen. He's got those snake yeah. eyes. He's, he's, so he's just good. piercing. Yeah. Yeah, we're big fans of him. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, maybe that's outrageous to say <laughs> next to Gary Cooper and Grace <laughs> Kelly, but, you know. Well, Gary Cooper just has the name behind <laughs> him for yeah. sure here i feel like he might be i have not seen this western actually uh-huh. i feel like maybe in this role he's about 10 years too old mm. but it's just the name gary cooper does sure, that's right carrying this along kind yeah. of you know and he's been working i mean he's like a fred astaire character you know back in the you know couple right. decades before this. another know? reason why we don't have too much that we don't really right. have watched him too much or anything <laughs> yeah. like that he's not tapping away right so <laughs> but yeah uh as far as this this lack of menacingness to it you know we we don't get to see them be intimidating we're just kind of told about it. Now, obviously, the time spent in examining their relationships with the town, I would have loved to see the same approach done with each of the four bad guys. Maybe we see or hear or are told in some way about uh, maybe their specific crimes. Maybe the 
dodgy past they had with the town and where Kane got involved and kicked them out, mm-hmm. but maybe they have friends in the town that are still there or something like that. Um, you know, obviously that that town uh, focus is key to all my praise for how we piece the story together, but unfortunately it was a lacking element come the finale because that's basically, they, they show up in the beginning, <laughs> we check in with them every now and again, and then they're there for the shootout, so come high noon. So, uh, Tom, you probably uh, are on the same wavelength by now. I honestly wrote that (laughs) expecting you to throw out this but this is very much the same feeling as a year later in 1953 Shane uh, that I can respect how this was probably groundbreaking at the time. I can respect that it is a a format will that will be you know built upon and Uh shoulders of giants but in itself maybe not I, I didn't like love it, love it. You know, that's uh, that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. Um, I was expecting I, you to throw out Shane. The, <laughs> the, no, I wasn't getting two Shane vibes. Uh, Shane vibes from this. Well, we share similar thoughts with Shane. I oh, will 100%. say, and I wouldn't be surprised if I feel it on here as well. But uh, okay, I like yeah. it. Yeah, I think uh, it, I would have to really do a deep dive into earlier westerns to see. I mean, did this really start the "Come see me at high noon"? You know, kind of kind of right. cliche or, or trope in in western writing. But uh, uh, nonetheless, I mean, it, it really isn't generic and uh, did so much uh, with its screenplay. And I can respect it for that, even though there are some aspects that were just a little lackluster. Sure. Um, I can clearly see the founda- how, how this movie was foundational back then, and it's certainly still good, but in the endless Western stories that have borrowed from it, uh, the original is uh, slightly duller than expected. We're going to go ahead and give High Noon 1952 a 70 on the dot. Oh, wow. 70 is actually a pretty good score. Absolutely. That's a, I mean, has a lot going against it as far as the daily ratings were. Sure. 50s? Mm. Western? <laughs> uh, you've been fair to our Westerns, the few that we've done uh, yeah, so far. Yeah. 70%, though, I mean, that's pretty good. And, and it's an hour and 25 minutes, yes. which is fantastic. I know. I know. This was also a later watch in the week, so I was, I was thankful for that, you know, of course, with the colossal three-hour Oppenheimer, you know. And, and kind of long Wild Bunch, honestly. Oh, very true. You know, I, yeah, Wild Bunch was very long. It was longer than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's, I think I watched a longer version of it, too, to be honest uh, I think I was a bit looking at this, what the official time is to what I watch. So, well, let's just jump 70% high noon. I, I think that's a great score. Yeah. That's fantastic. And you've managed to see a Western I have not seen now, mm, which is also impressive. Bit of a milestone. <laughs> look at that. Let's jump ahead. This is 1969 now. So just before the 70s kick off with those Westerns. But this is The Wild Bunch, directed by Sam Peckinpah. Mm. These two directors I'm not too familiar with, whether it be yeah, Fred Zeinman or Peckinpah. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Wild Bunch has a lot of big names on it. The version I watched was two hours and 25 minutes. Mm, okay. This is saying 2.15. Oh, interesting. Um, I, so like I said, I watched it. Let's get into it right away. Sure. You just said that you liked it better than High Noon. Yeah. How much did you like it? Oh, I, I really liked Wild Bunch. Um, <laughs> once again, folks, I mean, this is on almost every top 10 Western list. Um, so because watching these were so pushed back this month, uh, I was going for the throat. We're okay. going for some heavy hitters on our two slots. And who knows? Maybe I'll tackle some Westerns into August as well. Okay. So. Hey, don't be afraid to sprinkle them throughout the year for us. <laughs> A little bit less horror. I mean, just whatever, you know. I mean, springtime, wintertime. Spring- Time Western. 52 weeks in the year, <laughs> yeah. you know. Did, by the way, are you using my curated list at all? <laughs> yes, I was. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, Wild Bunch was actually the only one remaining on my list. Uh, oh, and then cool, I okay. Got, uh, I think High Noon was on yours, so. Uh, Wild Bunch was not on mine? Uh, I think it might have been. 
I don't know. I matter. know I had Wild Bunch aside because I, I saw some stuff for its cinematography. So. Oh, cool. Okay. Now, like you said, though, Tom, uh, no experience with the director. Yeah. Uh, he did direct a few episodes of The Rifleman. Tom, would you... He do, did? <laughs> the do? Rifleman, starring Chuck Connors. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Love maybe, that show. Maybe we'll do a Rifleman special, the one TV show. <laughs> you do the, uh, anyway, you do the Rifleman, and I've been getting severe thoughts on, severe. on the morning show. Oh, so really? that would be a great... <laughs> go. Maybe an April Fool's Day we'll yeah, do. <laughs> we'll do TV on April Fool's. Uh, but... Folks, I have very little to complain about here. This is basically a Western version of Heat. Uh, it's like if Michael Mann directed a Western. Wow. Uh, the action is so, so good. Uh, I was in love with the shootouts. I was in love with the focus on criminals, and they're all about planning heist, and they all hate each other, but you see the camaraderie so clearly. Big time, yeah. Um, again, above all else, the shootouts were amazing. I was sold. I mean, this is a good Western, a good action movie a good crime movie really and i'll I'll return to it uh, towards the end of the review really put some uh, peer westerns to shame come 1969 which is a believe it or not a very big year for westerns okay so we're gonna start talk about with editing and action that's how you know with this movie isn't messing around uh (laughs) and and let me tell you both are amazing there's a very interesting cuts in action sequences oftentimes shootouts will feel more chaotic than they actually seem to be or they actually are in the filming of it as well Mm -hmm. gunshots will have a slight zoom for impact which helps a lot with this kind of late 60s blood vfx you know not the best but i feel like the cinematography really just every impact it was just it was engaged with it i will say that the gore to this film mm. was was huge in this. Yeah, it was a turnoff for people. Oh, so gore really? wasn't being quite used like it was up until uh, now. We're not in the seventies yet. So. The, the, just the amount of blood spurting stuff like that yeah. on the shirts, and just the amount basically yeah. of people having that. Uh, yeah. It was it was a, a lot of kind of classic old school Western guys mm. didn't like it for that mm. for that fact. That's a good point. It was definitely ushering in probably probably sometimes of what we feel in, or in Tarantino, that mm. feeling when he gets hard on the gore or the yeah. blood yeah. is probably what audiences were feeling back, back in the day. Back then, yeah. yeah. And I, I will say there there's one point in the film that uh, there's a torture that someone gets kind of dragged on the ground and it was a little intense. Oh, we, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, um, but for me, I loved it. Uh, yeah. I, I thought that was great. <laughs> uh, especially because I feel like if I had to justify this or now and back then a little bit, it's it's they're about criminals. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're bodily harm. They're you know, they're not a they're not our hero. We can see them kind of rough and tumble a little bit. And right. I think that's where the violence is is a little bit earned. So most of all though, I did not expect slow motion used to improve the action in nineteen sixty nine. And best of all, folks, it looks amazing. A perfect example is during the opening shootout, uh, a gunslinger gets shot off a roof. And while he is falling, there are multiple cuts away to other parts of the action. Now, as he falls in slow motion, it might look a tiny bit silly, but multiple cuts are layered in time, to, in the time that it takes him to hit the ground. And it just communicates how fast and deadly this shootout is. By the time this man hits the ground, five other people have been killed. Mm-hmm. And 
it was it was just like a, a good like Spielberg edit that he takes the time and he stretches it, he elongates it. Um, it reminded me of Temple of Doom when Indy is uh, sliding under like that rolling like uh, torture machine, and like it cuts away three times before he's rolling, <laughs> and he keeps on getting like closer but farther away. The magic of editing in this yeah. action sequence made it more phonetic, made it more lethal uh, in the shootout, where I would not call '60s action lethal you know what i mean it's it's still very hollywood yeah it, it so that alone this editing style i think this was the first time it was it was done in mm. major cinema yeah so it was groundbreaking for that as well I, i'm not as thrilled <laughs> about either of those things you brought up okay. so far as you as you say it seems almost more chaotic than what it actually was shooting or something like sure. that you know the actual scene taking place it feels more chaotic because editing mm-hmm. i feel like it's a little too chaotic oh okay i think it's a little bit too busy and we're it's getting lost in the sauce a little bit mm. and not, loses the uh the literacy of, yeah of the scene. And, yeah and not flickery it's not that fast but it's some quick editing <laughs> yeah and i think it would really benefit to just have some shots stay mm. a little bit more because to me i it was busy mm. and that's what I kept on saying this it was really really busy the action scenes I think it should have been reined in a little bit as far as the slow-mo shots mm-hmm. I'm 50-50 on it and that's really because I feel like half of them worked mm-hmm. half of them didn't in that same opening the first kind of big scene yeah. that we see yep also, they use a slow-mo for a guy getting shot on a horse and him mm. falling through a window. Yep, yep. That looked terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> and also, they used the same sound effect three times in a row. Like, someone just clicked the button oh, to keep yeah. the sound going. We get a, we get multiple <clears throat> Wilhelm screams as well. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, it was all a bit too messy for me, those okay. two things together. I will say... Watching it, mm-hmm. I did kind of have opened eyes because it was a thing of like, oh, the, okay, this is happening pre-70s. Yeah. yeah. Very impressive. This is a serious action movie. And I, I feel like it was more, and I'm sure you're going to get into it as well through notes, I felt like it was more impressive and a better action scene, not because of the editing or the slow-mos, mm. but because the amount of people and choreography going on all oh, at once yeah. on one scene. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when we get into the Mexican army. Uh, oh, there's a lot. That was the most insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I think for me, I was just I was surprised how modern it felt. Sure, yeah. they took the challenge of trying to hold away from the comparison because there's one that comes out this very same year. But they took the challenge of what is normally kind of hard to shoot, uh, a, actually film a, a Western shootout without just saying you know filming someone shooting and then someone reacting, reacting. to get shot. Yeah, I feel like there is an interplay in the editing that again it's just in that. What they're trying to communicate of the man takes so long to fall to the ground and we see these other deaths during it. Yeah. That's how fast the action is happening. I could give it that. I'll give it that. Um, yeah. And that's where I'm coming from with this kind of Michael Mann analogy. It really felt like heat in the sense that like, whoa, this this bank has is not only going wrong, but like a lot of people are dying. You know? <laughs> like, this, is, this is bad. I want to know I haven't seen heat yet. <laughs> I am saving it for some type of special episode. I'm right. hoping to still do it with you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, it's now on the back burner. Yes. I, I just respected uh, uh, how phenomenal the editing was overall. Uh, that it one is a trick note aside. to make. Yeah. yeah. If anyone hasn't seen this or is going to see it, it is a note for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, and refreshing as well. Mm-hmm. The Wild Bunch tackles the topic of the Dying West, which uh, we covered heavily last year. Three out of the five Westerns we covered, in fact. It's 1913 in the story, and we experience this concept through the noose tightening around our gang's neck. Uh, the gang is run by Pike Bishop, a stern but aging gl- gunslinger uh, who has made plenty of enemies. Worst of all, 
working robbery to robbery has left the main crew members of the gang getting older and without really a decent retirement plan. <laughs> they kind of <laughs> say, oh, I don't know what... It's fine if the Western's ending. I don't really care, but what do I do? How am I making a buck? So the Wild Bunch stumbles into an opportunity of a lifetime while on the run south of the border. Uh, the army there is looking for American guns and promises to get the gang set up for life if they get the supply. Uh, but the real test comes from the loyalty that keeps the group together and how it will be pushed by their new crooked employer. Complicating things, we also follow a group of ex-con mercenaries, one of which is Pike's old partner, Thornton, uh, now hunting them down. As the story bluntly puts it, 30 days to get Pike or 30 days to get tossed back to Yuma, uh, which... I'll be honest, uh, I would have wanted a little bit more out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like this could have entered even Revenant territory in creating pressure from the front, pressure from the back. Uh, a little bit of chase. Uh, yeah, more of a chase. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, this B-plot, it, it's good. I like the hunt aspect. Honestly, though, uh, it would have been so much better if they were clocked up as a threat. The the This this secondary posse yeah. hunting them down, they're so ragtag. They're so, like, You only have one comp. Yeah. Like, you know, chaotic. Like, <laughs> only one comp in a character. Yeah, and it just didn't feel like a threat at all. And I don't think the film even thinks it's a threat by the end as well. No, they, talked to, they talked to that, too, saying, like, um, Robert Ryan's character, uh, Thornton, Thor- Thornton mm-hmm. he was actively, he was visibly and actively in telling how disappointed he was the crew, the crew he got to deal with it <laughs> right, to deal with right. it, go hunt these people down yeah so yeah that I think I almost think because of the length of the movie mm-hmm. they could have spent a little bit more time away from the wild bunch sure and gone with B team the chase mm-hmm. aspect because mm-hmm. it would have been I just think it would have been better yeah or maybe make them dangerous chaotic or maybe you make them even worse criminals like we're already dealing with criminals but they clearly have their camaraderie the and, bad of the bad yeah exactly yeah. maybe those those um you know kind of prospector types you know <laughs> to that to that i like thornton's character yes but he was the only one good in that group and, yeah. and not long enough for sure exactly to your point exactly so i i just feel like that aspect real if that clocked up man this movie would be even better in my opinion yeah there was so heavy heavy dialogue scenes mm. between our main crew mm-hmm. that they either could have been shortened up, some completely cut out, sure, and you would have had plenty of real estate there. Yeah, to add to that, absolutely, absolutely, or maybe even cut out some of the Mexican army stuff because a lot of yeah. a lot of the scenes linger and yeah, it's threatening, but it's dialogue like, heavy. Yeah, this it film really is. is dialogue heavy. It really is, yeah. especially within the gang and you know, uh, yeah. and how they how they operate as a gang. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they rib each other, but they you know, uh, they're still one one step from pulling a bullet <laughs> in each other's brain. So uh, and really, that's a good transition. Luckily. The dynamic nature of our gang is, uh, is is a highlight here. I think they're able to get tense and chaotic, but we also see how they can stick together. You know, these outlaws are, are comrades. They rib each other. They joke around. But again, they're they're one step away from one one line to put a bullet in each other. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, folks judge the book by the cover here. It's a wild bunch, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's great that we're reminded of this so frequently in the story. It's it's a chaotic nature that actually had me thinking of Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that a group of bounty hunters should equally feel at odds with each other and also like a family. Granted, <laughs> I don't know. 
that's the goal. Like a like a gritty criminal group is the goal of the Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, they're still superheroes. But uh, it just had uh, it had me thinking about how you write a group of characters and how they interact and how that interaction yeah. determines our feelings on the group as a whole. I like you that. Know? I would definitely go Firefly more. Oh, okay. Even there's even one character uh, in the wild in the bunch yep. uh, that reminded me of the Baldwin oh, character right, in Firefly right. as well. Yeah, the muscle face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good catch. Good but catch. Uh, I, that that's a good note though. Yeah. That everyone is in a a working dynamic in this larger dynamic. Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah. And they're not just like teamed up for the sake of teaming up. Uh, actually, one of our first uh, right. interactions is from that bank shootout. Oh, someone has to get left behind. And one of the gang members, uh, I think Ernest, I forget how he pronounced his last name. Uh, he was in... <laughs> Ernest Borgnine? Yeah, yeah. He was in the uh, those terrible Escape actor. from New York He movies. was. He's yeah. a big actor. Er- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, they, they leave someone behind, and he's just like, well, what are we going to do, a church service? What are we going to do, uh, right, you know, right. you know uh, dinner afterwards? And it's just like, yeah, I mean, we're constantly reminded through the writing, uh, and as much as talking as there is, mm-hmm. of why and how this group stays together when, oddly enough, they probably would be enemies in any other circumstances yeah so, very good point yeah and and you know i i think that again it's 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 telling this like michael mann style it's about criminals i mean that was all about it um, it's all criminals this yeah. film is all criminal <laughs> yeah you're right there's no one good <laughs> in this cast wise uh william holden plays our gang leader pike and is is great um this is also uh seven years before his tremendous prom- performance in 1976's network uh which is I would say is most iconic. We get Robert Ryan playing Thornton, uh, Pike's uh, jaded partner on his tail. Uh, He's no stranger to these type of big action films, starring in many other westerns and films like 1967's The Dirty Dozen, Mm. of course, very iconic. Yep. And a slew of other classic actors recognizable from over the decades. Uh, a, a small favorite of mine was spotting L.Q. Jones, a longtime actor and one-time director of the po- post-apocalyptic classic Boy and His Dog. So, oh my uh, gosh, yes, yeah, yeah. L.Q. is uh, he's he's actually one wow. of the you know the yippee ki kind of you know uh, in the posse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so not great, but <laughs> but. Wow. Uh, uh, I spotted that on good the catch. on the Amazon X-ray. I was like, LQ. I I know only one man named LQ. <laughs> good catch on that movie. Yeah. So uh, I uh, saw on the newsletter last year we covered 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, even just saying the name, yeah. it, it holds gravity to it. Which had some pretty notable shootouts, had themes of camaraderie among criminals, and had a sharp script. This film, however, puts it to shame, it, and it came out the very same year. I feel like. This completely wiped the floor with it, mm. and as well, other type of peer movies. During award season this year, peer westerns like the original True Grit and the mentioned in Butch, Butch Cassidy really swept up the Oscars. I feel like the Wild Bunch was snubbed straight up. In, it could have been 69. snubbed. I think True Grit. What I think True Grit was awarded and thought of better mm-hmm. all because I think they felt like they needed to do something because they thought John Wayne was not going to oh, get too much longer. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember ba- even you telling me about Yeah, that. I think he had a start with cancer already here. Mm. Um, he ended up living for a decent number of years. He made some stuff in the 70s, of sure. course. But I, I think it was like, we're running out of years for him mm. and we need to give him some sort of Oscar. Mm. I think that's why True Grit was kind of... Because True Grit, I don't know if it's my in my top five right, the original. of John Wayne films. Right. Yeah, yeah. If anything, I think I'd like the, the newer one uh, better than 
Like, oh, well, I think a lot of people do, honestly. Yeah. I don't think that's much. I don't think you're saying much there. Okay. It's a bit more of a toss-up for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I but just... yeah, it's I a big would, year. It, it's a big year for Westerns. And, and you know, I, I like we always say, we could give, you know, two craps of what the Oscars do when they don't. Of course. No less, you know, 50-some years back. <laughs> uh, but it really was just a moment that was just like, wow, they, they got it totally wrong. Um, the Wild Bunch is where it's at. The Wild Bunch was just so much more inventive, so much more energy, and so much more modern in its film craft that it made me question how little it was nominated, period. Uh, take a pinch of Jesse James at a dash of Unforgiven and wrap it up in this proto-Michael Mann style, and folks, it did not disappoint and well deserves a spot on so many all-time great lists. We're going to go ahead and give The Wild Bunch, 1969 and 82. Wow! It's a good Whoa. one. I would say I, I, easily yeah. one of my favorite Westerns as well. I think clearly. <laughs> I think this is the first Western that got above an 80%. No. This is the first Western that got above... I, I don't was know. peeking on the site. We got some others. Oh, we do? We got one that you don't like. Uh, the, uh, the, actually, what? the Conan Brothers one, the uh, Buster Scruggs. Uh, oh, eighty-two yeah. <laughs> percent is huge, folks. Eighty-two. If you're new to the podcast, it's not often we get above eighties mm-hmm. at all. And when you're above eighty-five, that's say that's like must watch. Any yeah. audience before you die, go see it. That's eighty. I mean, eighty-two for a western. You don't understand <laughs> what this film had going against it. Um, <laughs> That's, now I'm I, curious I, I, to hear your opinions, though, because you weren't I, as hot on this. I, I wasn't as hot as it on uh, as you, so I don't have a time. I don't even have a time of two shoes. Oh, okay, 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 fair. I was impressed by the number of people on screen. I was impressed by the choreography of all that needed to go down. The crazy horse work that at one point going down the sand yeah, and everything like yeah. that. The stuff's going. All of that was all impressive. Even the actors, the camaraderie, it was impressive mm-hmm. uh, to to an extent. I, I felt like it was too long, too mm. much dialogue. I don't think we got enough from Robert Ryan uh, from Thornton's character. Yep, yep. I think he was so good on screen. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see him more. Yeah, and he had a presence. About he's him. a good guy, but he's not. He's still a bad guy, <laughs> and that's hilarious. I, I enjoyed seeing the action on the screen, mm-hmm. and especially there's two or three big action stuff going on. Yeah. My problem is, is it was over chaotic for me. Mm. It was overly chaotic, and it was a little bit too messy and too busy. Interesting. I could follow along and everything like that. It's Did just, you think the blood was too much? No. Okay. I mean, because we're how many years later? Uh, sure. Now that sure. we've been through the 90s and the early 2000s, we're good. Sure. Uh, I know back then it was a big deal, especially right. at the end. Yeah, the yeah. More, more, more blood. This, 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 <laughs> they were not used to it that It really is then. Tarantino-esque. Not used to it back then. Yeah. But it was overly busy, and I couldn't grip on the characters. Or like, I mean, my, I would say I really liked uh, Pike and Dutch, Ernest Borgnine's mm, character, yep, yep. a lot. Somewhat relatable, somewhat not. I don't know. I don't know why, honestly, it wasn't. Mm. Even the, the train sequence was a very good sequence. Mm. And yet it just wasn't something that was grabbing me all too much. Interesting. Maybe I like did, that perspective, it, it, though. It might have not helped that the version I watched was 10 minutes longer, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I got to double check on what I watched. I, I would have cut down on the dialogue. That's all. Okay. I would have cut down on the dialogue and maybe cleaned up the action a little bit more. Mm. So a really good film. Mm. I just don't feel enough about it to, to give it a two shoes. Okay. And 82 for you is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, the the ongoing thing was we couldn't crack the 80s with you. With, Westerns. with old Westerns. Yeah, right? Yeah, that Buster yeah. Scrubs gets on there, whatever. Right. Uh, John, Because John Wayne can't hold a candle. I mean, 82. <laughs> I don't, we're lost in the wind here. 
And that's okay. We still haven't done a John Wayne one. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Not holding a grudge. No, no. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Though. Any finishing notes on that? I mean, it's... No, no. I, it's I a think, great, that's a well, great score. I, I like your perspective a lot because I think it, it maybe can represent as well someone that maybe is expecting more of a hero or heroics to the to the film. Um, and and I, didn't, I wasn't looking for it. Oh, okay. No, okay. I, I didn't. I, I, the fact that we were dealing with all bad guys, I quite liked. Okay, all right. And it was different. And the fact that we were watching a Western and still in 69 mm. that we didn't have super polished good guy mm-hmm. I I was more than okay with that oh yeah it's just the execution the busyness of it and I said the dialogue a I lot thought, of dialogue a lot of dialogue and I thought it could have been cleaned up a little bit even sure, there was sure. some stuff just still as far as production of the film goes maybe could have been a better mm. even though in some ways it was very impressive mm. no but I, I love that perspective because uh, it was a lot of dialogue uh, and uh, I, I was kind of lasered into how is working with the, the chemistry of the group sure. but that can equally bore someone as well if they're not you know care to pay attention it, yeah, to it that or connection yeah, yeah. right what a surprise for you though that's just... <laughs> yeah I told you it was a good week that's a big one that is it a is really a big good one good week I don't know. It might, it might take a couple years, Vin, until we get back to an 82% <laughs> with the Western. But anyway, folks, with that, let's go ahead and go into our donation segment. Now, we do have a producer this week, Vin, which Ooh, is great. That's a big said, week. Been a little dry, but that's okay. We get it. We get it. People are still trying to figure out, what are we doing? What does value for value mean? It's, it's all good. It's all good, folks. We do have a returning producer here, though, coming in. We have Glenn and Carol, who donated 50 bucks towards oh, us. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Thank they, you so much. They've been producers since the beginning, something yep. we appreciate so, so much and we have a big note we have a big <laughs> buckle in Glenn wrote a big note but that's okay we'll go through it here because we appreciate <laughs> we appreciate all of it <laughs> so Glenn and Carol write greetings Vinny and Thomas as we are avid listeners of the show and having produced several episodes we would like to give our thoughts and opinions on several things mm, several <laughs> they buckle in. An agenda so first we thought episode 91 was one of your poorer shows oh. the insidious show was not much to work with Stayed listening due to your commentary, but the movies you reviewed were, were subpar to work with. We do like paranormal and some horror genre movies, and we also realize that there are some fans out there that are a fan of the franchise. Mm. That being said, to waste an entire episode was lackluster at best. <laughs> Most, we are sure, would agree, including yourselves, having you rated them so poorly. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I will say the homework was necessary to kind of grasp, if anything, for Red Door, to grasp, right. you know... Patrick Wilson's <laughs> ghost PTSD. Uh, we'll go, I'm going to go through all these. Yeah, we'll go yeah. Through. Okay, so they say, second, you turned it around 100% with episode 92 Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> Emerald, Emerald Agassi would say, bam, let's kick it up a notch. You both did just that. While we are sure the majority of the listeners are fans of this genre, you guys nailed it. It was exciting and jam-packed with content and got us excited to want to watch some of these movies. Your ratings of the movies were uh, all above average as well. This podcast was one of your longest, and then the time flew by mm. as if it was your normal hour or so shows. That's a great note. Yeah. This show had highlights as well. Hey, Vin, what's mom making in the dinner and she's a little moody? What's that smell? Tension lasagna. Tension lasagna. Don't eat that last pizza Stouffer's, Vinny, or I'll be pissed. What's that? You guessed it, folks. Tension lasagna. Tension lasagna. Vinny, your new use of this culinary critique of your synopsis of the films was fun and enjoyable. Oh, that's great. I got some for Oppenheimer, too. So. 
<laughs> Thomas, the dare we say a possible polished rating that Vin suggested is a must. Your ratings, Tom, have been expanding on the show, and we think it is awesome. Two shoes, laces, polished, flip-flops, loads of fun, Tommy Two Shoes. Third point, we realize that your show takes a lot of time to research and prepare for, but we would like to say that when Thomas has seen some of the movies, the back-and-forth banter is great. It's a greater listen than when Thomas is asking questions. Reminds of us watching Siskel and Ebert back in the day, reviewing movies with a thumbs up or down. Your show definitely goes further with a percentage and sometimes the two shoes, which makes it that much more enticing to listen to. Even if it's not a movie one is particularly interested in, this is what makes the show great. Fourth point. Love the, <laughs> Four out of six. <laughs> love the newsletter. A quick, fun read. Maybe the recipe section gave you insight, Vinny, on your review skills. <laughs> Maybe subconsciously. <Yeah>. <laughs> love the domestic and global box office takes and wondered if it would be possible to add what each of the movies cost to make. Oh. It would be nice to know if a movie was tanking or turning a profit. Fifth point, shame for both strikes. I think he's talking about the writers and actors strikes. Mm. He goes, have a feeling 2024 content will be delayed or poorer than usual. Not looking forward to the barrage of reality and game shows on the tube. Thank <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> or there were, AI content, yeah, more likely. <laughs> Thank, uh, thankfully, there are a ton of movies out there to review. Lastly, we just wanted to give an early congrats on your forthcoming Hundy episode. <laughs> your show has continually evolved and gotten better. Looking forward to the next hundred and wish you both continued success. Your producers, Glenn and Carol, wow, are... a phenomenal note. A, a phenomenal A hearty note. note. It had it all in there. <laughs> Categorical. So we'll go through this. Let's just go through this kind of... We'll go through this backwards sure, a little sure. bit. So uh, I do believe the shows are getting better and better. We yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely. And we're getting more comfortable here on the mics even. It's just getting great. Uh, the strikes, we'll see what content coming out. I will the see. The one thing, even with the latest newsletter I threw in there, there is a growing list that they're granting work waivers for. Mm. So more and more of these films, like for instance, right now, uh, Mission is held up. Uh, Haunted De- Mansion, Deadpool. I saw, have a press release. Uh, I mean, But know. that's in the can. That should still be coming out just fine. Oh, right, right. But I'm still, about, oh, right. oh, oh, down the road. Mission Part Two mm. is already held up now. Mm-hmm. I think Deadpool Three is held up, and that new, the new uh, F One movie with uh, Brad Pitt that's going to be coming oh, out. That okay. he's filming that's not production, but slowly things are going to be, I think, granted waivers because mm. the problem is the union's going to have an issue with here is. You can't piss off the viewing audience too mm-hmm. much, wondering where you're at, because then we're all going to start siding with the studios. Mm-hmm. You know, then you're not going to get anything. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a weird balance that they have to do as far as granting work, but also not having enough where they can turn the screws. Sure. We'll see with that. I think that you bring up a good point because there's a lot of talk of supporting all this and and donating and whatnot, and I think we're both in support of the actors. Screw the studios, but at the same time, when it comes to <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I, we I can split it down the middle pretty easily. Okay. I am for sure. Or not straight out on the actor side. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but when it comes to um, push comes the shove, are people really going to bring up the massive amount of content that is funneled to them through streaming and through you know the, the huge amount of movies that are released in this year alone? I feel like people are going to want to still get what they, they want, and that's where it's going to buckle. That's where that support's going to become a lot weaker. There is some cool indie stuff we might be able to get, some cool lower-level stuff that could come mm. out of this, too. So we'll uh, we'll just see how it goes. We yeah. could I could spend an hour with you on it. Mm. We could record a special and just get <laughs> right, it out. Right. I'm talking about it. I am not on anyone's side completely. Sure. I can go either way. I can hear both arguments a little bit. So I'm a little bit more of a fence. that's a good level A little bit more of a fence sitter on this one. Right. Uh, the newsletter. Great suggestion I'm putting in the budget. I'll think I'll put the budget in there. Mm, okay. And it is a good quick fun read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the bottom of the website, sign up for the newsletter, <laughs> put, the put your name, put your email in there. That's all you need. You're good to go. <laughs> 
uh, as far as I know, Vin loves it too. Uh, the more movies I watch, and the more back and forth we can have. Mm. Uh, not that I don't enjoy it either. It, it's mm. fun. It might get a chance for more two shoes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's if I can make it happen, I can. I can make right, it happen. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think the important working chemistry is that I am handling the movies, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Tom is not. But I feel like the what's illustrated in that Mission Impossible episode, you wanted. You know, to watch all those. Right. Yeah. You had your a genuine curiosity. I feel like if uh, I, you know, if we agree to you watch one movie uh, that I'm watching a week, but you have no interest with it, that's that's not going to add into uh, you know a productive conversation. Right. At that either. point, and if I had time to watch it, I might as well do some work on the site or something. Sure. Because right. I'm doing some of the, this background stuff and everything like that. Absolutely. Although Vince, hey, look us up on our socials too. Vince's been going awesome on that <laughs> with some of the YouTube and Instagram stuff. Yeah. Let's get to the first one with the insidious stuff. Now, <laughs> okay. everyone knows i am not a big horror fan so i almost feel the same way Uh turn back to i mean i don't need personally as much as much horror in my life that being said this is where the podcast is very much we almost shoot ourselves in the foot Mm. because for a lot of people we are not a sit down and just listen to the whole thing Mm -hmm. sometimes we're not a listen to these two episodes but we'll listen to these two Mm. covering five films a week it can be so hit or miss for each individual's people's likings Mm -hmm. so that's just gonna how it's have to be now they seem like avid listeners to the point that they listen all the way through for every episode, mm-hmm. which is huge. Mm-hmm. But we do have some of those. But it really comes to a thing of, I just think we're going to have some weeks that isn't going to pique your interest so much. Sure, sure. And you just said you think, one, it was a five slot, so it's great to get all five movies in there. Mm-hmm. They do have a cult following. You also wanted to get through one or two. One, yeah, three, and big uh, as one far as box office-wise. You know what I mean? Uh, right. If there's anything uh, that governs the the series breakdowns uh, kind of episodes, the series specials, if you will, it's that, it, <laughs> is it making money? Well, someone's going to care. I mean, someone's got to be buying the tickets. For so. sure. And I, and I think overall, they, they were kind of trying to say, we think also that it might not be what most people would be into. Mm, sure, sure. Th- that's kind of how I feel. And yeah, yeah. For some weeks, we'll stay away from some stuff. Yeah. I will, I'll just say, though, we're on episode 93, mm-hmm. you know, so in the 92 published episodes, mm-hmm. Insidious is tied for second best. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Our top. Listen, I'm. Which is crazy. Glenn Carroll, I'm with you. Insidious sucked. I mean, that was, like I said, I moved into a new place and I was not scared uh, watching these movies in the dark alone, you know? So the proof's in the pudding there, but... Uh, At best four things that we've ever done, apparently. The John Wick okay. uh, and Insidious and the Guardians 3 episode t- oh. tied for second and way out in first. with Our best performing episode yet as far as like downloads and listens. Uh-huh. Uh, the Fast 10 episode. <laughs> of course. I mean, like, with, without, it's just way right, yeah, in there, There's the proof in the pudding as well. <laughs> put myself uh, So that's hell. just how it's going to be. There's going to be some weeks that hit, some that miss. But yeah. But I, I think it's a good observation. And, I mean, if only. Sorry, like the episode, basically. Right, I mean, yeah, yeah. Apparently I, a lot of people did. <laughs> To my surprise as well. <laughs> and also, uh, I think it's a good it's a good tie back into your engagement with it. You weren't into these movies, uh, Tom. You right, know? I right. I mean, you weren't uh, not into the horror and you're not into bad horror, certainly. So. <laughs> but I, always, I still love I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter what we're doing. I'm still having a blast yeah, yeah. on the other side of the table. <laughs> it just might not be as a little bit chatty, that's all. <laughs> right, right. Folks, if you're wondering uh, what it's going on in the podcast now, why we're not talking about movies, because if you're new to this, we're going off the value for value model. And what the idea is, Vin and I sit down every week, Vin watches the movies, we sit down and do the podcast, we have the newsletter, we have the companion piece, basically the website going along with all this, kind of like our own Rotten Tomatoes. The point of that is that value to you, you finding it valuable. 
we want you to go to the dailyratings.com, you go to the donations tab, and you become a legit producer of the daily ratings by sending in a monetary donation that's also saying how much value you're getting. You put a dollar's figure to how much value you're getting is send it our way. We have single donations you can make. You can make whatever. We can make the value for value, which is whatever number you want. We have monthlies. We have a weekly you can do. You can hit us up on the website. We are also podcasting 2.0 if you want to send Satoshis. We are on at the daily ratings on uh, Venmo. Mm -hmm. A lot of different ways to do that. But the point is, when you go ahead and send money in, you can also write in a note, just like Glenn and Carol did. The idea behind that is you are a legit producer. Glenn and Carol, you are executive producers of episode 93. And because of that, we're going to take time to hear your thoughts, your comments, your questions. Mm -hmm. So all of that had this on there. Some questions, some critiques, love, hate, doesn't matter. We want to hear from you. If you're going to send us some cash, if you're going to give us some value, we want to show some a little appreciation for that. It is the value for value model. It's the dailyratings.com. You head to the donations tab. And just like Glenn and Carol, you go ahead and become a producer of the daily ratings. We thank you all so much. Don't forget to donate the Hundy on the Hundy (laughs) as episode 100 is right around the corner. But really, we appreciate your $50 this week. Executive Producers for Glenn and Carol, episode 93. Our longest note yet, but a lot of great content in there. Mm. We appreciate that. Absolutely. So, all right, Finn, with that, let's keep things going. We have our three newly released films. Yep. We're running long here, folks, but that's okay. Let's start with our least known one, I think. I think we're both on board for that. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, we're going to start with They Clone Tyrone, uh, directed by Jewel Taylor, and two main stars in this. We have Jamie Foxx. We have John Bio- Bi- uh, uh, Boyega. Thank you. <laughs> you messed me up. We, we have <laughs> all know him from Star Wars and from one of our least like new films last year. Ah, uh, Missing. Yeah. Mm, good catch. But uh, let's get into it right away. They cloned Tyrone. How was it? Uh, well, like I said at the beginning of the episode, uh, this was a excellent week uh, across the board. Uh, I was not complaining at all. Okay. Uh, and They cloned Tyrone... You, if you catch the trailer for this, maybe it's uh, pushed out to you when you first log into Netflix. Um, it is not your normal movie, and I was really uh, attracted to how wild and out there it was. It surprised me. I don't know if it's not on anyone's radar. Yeah, it's so much Barberheimer t- talk. Mm, true, you know absolute I mean? loss in the shuffle. Yeah, for sure, for sure. This is the first feature film Jewel Taylor has directed, and is an interesting combination of talent. Uh, in addition to like you know enjoying giving first time directors a shot, rather than just be a writer or an editor, um, Tyler is uh, or Taylor is coming from a sound mix. Mixing background. I can't say I noticed a lot of audio tricks in this movie, but he certainly knows how to create an interesting tone and mood. And I felt like that was a interesting it's a weird, combination yeah. of, of talent. So he co-wrote it as well yep. uh, with another guy that kind of has a weird background-ish kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was excited for this. Unlike a lot of Netflix releases this year, this one certainly looked much more unique. Uh, This plays out like a hood gangster film that's a dark comedy with a sci-fi mystery spin. It is pretty out there stuff and pretty great for that reason. I mean, this was a very, like like Barbie almost, uh, so unique, so its own thing that it was hard for me to levy my usual critiques at it uh, because it was accomplishing something so so out there. Okay. Um, And had a cast I was excited to see, mainly John Boyega, which, like you said, Tom, after the miss in 2022 with Breaking... Uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to give him another shot because I like him. I think he can do good stuff, uh, and uh, clearly this was a good example of that. Okay, so. that's good. I'm I'm very much not on board with him. Sure, but but even before he was in Star Wars, he was in that one small time kind of cult movie. Uh, I think. Attack the Block. Yes. Yeah. And you were a fan of that. Uh, 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe uh, you just I, knew who he was. Yeah, then. yeah. I knew he was. Actually, that's so funny that uh, that was brought up by uh, by Matt D in a, in a conversation as well. Okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I root for John Boyega because I think he he has some good potential, and here this was on display. So, uh, but what is they cloned Tyrone about? Well, like the movie says itself, a a pimp, a hoe, and a drug dealer team up to get to the bottom of a mystery in the hood. <laughs> John Boyega plays a badass gangster named Fontaine. Tayona Paris plays Yo-Yo, a hooker obsessed with a conspiracy and Nancy Drew novels. And best of all, the pimp Slick Charles. <laughs> uh, Slick Charles is played by Jamie Foxx, uh, doing his best player-hater ball impression right out of a Chappelle show sketch. I mean, he is <laughs> so entertaining as this just, like, wisecracking pimp. Uh, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> is he a little bit out of, like, the black exploitation films that oh, we covered? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. I feel like this was I, I was so tuned into this because is this trying to be or can this even be defined as black black exploitation? I don't know, but it is absolutely in that wheelhouse, like a black dynamite, like a shaft uh, that is right. just so good on its own, and it's from these kind of blown up characters, these caricatures of it. So they find a secret high tech laboratory in a drug house, and it opens up a huge can of worms beyond their wildest imagination. This discovery has them putting on their tinfoil hats, paranoid of everyday products around them, and questioning how they are suspiciously targeted through their neighborhood specifically. I would say, as much as I've talked up Boyega, the the stealer of the show is Jamie Foxx. He is very (laughs) funny in this, and I absolutely love the character the whole time. This is one of those like great side performances that you would see in Shaft or Black Dynamite that kind of steals the show altogether. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially for Shaft, uh, that some of his that the Pesci uh, characters, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they they're just better than everyone else because maybe they don't have enough time on screen, but they leave you wanting more. And and that that was Jamie Foxx's character to a T here. I didn't know how I was going to dig the comedy. Yeah, I was in this for more of the sci-fi mystery element. Yeah, it's it. being pegged as a lot of different things. It's being it's to compare this to other films. Mm-hmm. It's a very big array of films, kind yeah. of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I feel like the comedy for me. I I walked into this and I was like oh, this is where it's going to be weak this is where it's not going to land the jokes aren't going to land it's not going to be funny you know yada yada but he is cons- consistently hysterical his character is right out of a Chappelle show sketch like I said in the best way possible and <laughs> like really such a good way but yeah this is as far as why it's so out there why it's so genre juggling this 100% belongs to an emerging subgenre along with a lot of Jordan Peele style films um, the term I've heard thrown around is after Afro surrealism, and hmm. folks, apologies if in, in advance if that gets tossed out eventually because it already sounds a bit dicey, you know. Yeah, maybe you know like Afro jazz and things like right. that. But uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> so, but but that's at least the term being thrown around right now. The defining feature here is that it's taking these black experiences or or, or worldview and making them heightened by incorporating genre bending elements. Uh, horror and sci-fi is the case with this movie Uh, and a good example of this beyond just Jordan Peele's other type of movies uh, is 2008's Sorry to Bother You and of course Donald Glover's hit show Atlanta Mm -hmm. Uh, all kind of belong in this emerging space of stories around black experiences but also always twisted in some way to incorporate another genre and genre bending elements Mm. to it so does that make sense? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I okay. think, yeah, I think we, we're with you on that. Cool, cool. More so than anything, you know, again, <laughs> apologies if that term gets thrown out. But that's, <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's being called right now. We experience some of this commentary through commercials in universe and wise hobos on the street. Reminded me of uh, a Paul Verhoeven style mm, in its okay. world building, which is awesome. I can't tell you how well executed it is. Um, you certainly feel it in the surreal setting being this kind of retro future mix. It's equally looks like it, you know, the pimps are out of the 70s, but it's in modern day. They have like cell phones and everything like that. So it's this, it's this retro future mix in its setting. The music that plays is all manufactured to have like sleeper cell lyrics in it. It's like really, <laughs> really like awesome stuff uh but it's in the subtle introduction of these factors that makes it all work these factors are from the very start uh and as an audience even if you haven't watched the trailer even if this is truly a blind watch onto netflix yeah. you can sense that there's something wrong to the sci-fi there's something that uh, a little bit foreboding to all of these world-building factors around them that the characters themselves haven't even noticed. And unlike some of the peer movies in this subgenre, I feel like this was a huge step up for selling such a wild concept and earning the payoff of how wild this gets. Mm. Going back to Sorry I Bothered You, I kind of like that film. I think it's <laughs> the rare film that, comment, uh, that, that has commentary on the telesales community, which is something that is very modern and, and needs, to, needs to kind of be have a spotlight on when it comes down to it though that film gets so wild at the end and comes out of left field it doesn't feel earned right they clone right. tyrone it's baked into the whole experience and that's where i would be very comfortable placing this next to any paul verhoeven style film that it is thought through it is organized and it is calculated to to give you this experience to wow. create a foreboding sci-fi to it if okay that makes sense. yeah okay but yeah i i feel like this was just such a such a great concept and 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 how is a dark comedy as well man i i just i, I really loved it overall this was an awesome sci-fi flick uh, and an awesome mystery. Um, while I feel there might be some nitpicks to that I could throw towards maybe some of the production, maybe for the the story continuity itself, uh, or how maybe certain things are revealed, it was just so unique. It really worked past it in in a genuine way. I feel like the end experience has a worthiness to this film that even if you're maybe not digging the the wild, out-there sci-fi concepts, uh, it, 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 the payoff is worth it. I would say, folks, in addition to the slew of other media that I referenced in this review, I would say I, I'm kind of a gut feeling, if you like any of the Edgar Wright films for specifically their story mm. and how it unfolds, I feel like give this a watch. There's the same care. There's the same attention to detail put into how the sci-fi is revealed here same pacing and everything like that like how is the movie paced i would say so i would i would uh, specifically of edgar wright's hot fuzz is probably a good example okay. of how you know it's deceivingly innocent in the beginning and then it kind of unfolds into wild and wild and wild mm. there was a a thought here that this was going to be the throwaway for this week and i was just like ah, oh, it's a new film you know let's let's go ahead and cover it you know but this was a glimmer in netflix's catalog this year and I was really ple presently surprised. Go ahead and give it a watch. We're going to go ahead and give They Clone Tyrone a 74. 74, a great score. Yeah, that's a great a, week. That's a, that, that's a, that's a good, very good movie right there, 74%. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow, They Clone Tyrone. Out of nowhere, really. So that's what I'm 
did you just see it and say go for it, uh, or did you he, were did you were you aware of it? It was on and, my radar. I think it was on the list of of, of all the movies planned out for the right, year. Okay. Uh, just because I try to capture you know what is new on streaming as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But um, I tackled this one, and I, man, I'm telling you, it was a really good sci-fi. It might be and, one of the best ones for streaming, honestly. Yeah. This year, yeah. And I'm excited to see what comes from Tyler. Um, uh, Taylor. Ta- Jewel Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> that that's fantastic. All right, I might check it out. That's that's and Jamie Fox. Oh, and a character looking like that. So the way he does. Yeah. He's so, he has this joke. He's just like, I, I'm going to slip out of this silk suit and half a second, I'm going to be back into it before you know me. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so good. Like, he's he's so funny consistently through, through the whole thing. Okay, 74. Uh, yeah, not, uh, not expecting that. We'll keep it going here. We have our two biggies. Oh. When I will start with Bar- Barbie. Okay. <laughs> We're going to jump to Greta Gerwig's Barbie. And let's get right into it. It is, man, it is taking over the internet. It is taking <laughs> over the theaters. It's taking over everyone's money. And how did we like Barbie? I would say Barbie was great. It really oh. was a, a good time. Uh, folks, I'll say right out of the gate, I had no expectations for this movie being good. Um, uh, and, and honestly, I feared if it was good, it would just invite yet another massive toy brand into the yearly movie cycle. Now, Rumor Mill has already started that uh, r- reportedly there's going to be a Hot Wheels movie already in, in the process. JJ, JJ's... Yeah. Working yep. on it. JJ's working on it. Right. So I guess there's... And Barney. No... Oh, boy. How does Mattel own Barney? Is, does Mattel own Barney? I don't know. Okay. Well, or maybe it's just like in the other type of kid brand Right, regardless. Conversation. It's on Doc. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the financials don't lie. Uh, this is a mega success. Barbie specifically. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Oppenheimer aside. So I guess there's no putting Mattel back into the bottle alongside Hasbro. And I'm sure they'll come out of the woodwork because <laughs> of this. Sniffing out the money. Uh, and against my expectations, Barbie was excellent. I really thought this was a great movie. And and so unique it could have been so predictable could have been so by the books you think about this concept in the 90s she gets to the real world she she finds a little girl to get her you know into fish out of water stuff sure it could have been so single lane and 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 avoids all of that and not only that is a very funny satire this may have some corporate aspects to it but the movie has a sharp script that punches on all sides and is surprisingly a great satire i would put this movie alongside of the massively successful lego movies for how Hmm. the idea of the toy was utilized in the movie and in the script, and how smart the writing was uh, around that concept of the toy. Okay. Um, so you didn't get lazy writing from this? No, no, not okay. at all. Not at all. I feel like lazy writing would have been Barbie gets to the real world. Oh, she's a fish out of water. Oh, she she right. you know she gets in trouble, or or she finds a little girl that you know helps her teach how to be a real person. No, it's none of that. Okay. It's it's so impressive uh, how this avoids almost every expectation I had of where this would be bad or eye-rolling or cliche, you know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. Let's talk about the rising talent behind this Greta Gerwig. Uh, This is the fourth film she has directed after the two Oscar-nominated films, uh, the film adaptation of Little Women in 2019 and Lady Bird in 2017. Uh, I would really like to cover these films in the next few months because Gerwig is both writing and directing in these movies. And uh, just like I said with the last film, I think it's important to pay attention to talent 
talent that has a singular vision, is able to execute upon that. She is also, she's writing with this with her partner or former partner, Noah, Noah Baumbach, right. who also wrote White uh, Noise. White, white Noise. Yep. Greta Gerwig was the wife in that film. Yep. And of course, Marriage Story. Yep, absolutely. So it's definitely a good writing team. And I thought, okay, this is has something going for it then yeah. if he's yeah. going to be on writing as well. Yeah. And yeah, she definitely has that limelight. She is, as far as women being pushed in the industry, mm-hmm. she's one of the top ones. She already has Netflix picked her up to do at least two Chronicles of Narnia films. Oh, really? That's coming back? Yeah. And oh, she's boy. doing it, which concerns me, to be honest with you. Oh, I uh, hear the... I hear... <laughs> I, hear, I, I could have sworn growing up you were no Narnia all over the rings. Well, obviously, I mean, that's, that's obviously, of course, of course. But I have respect for Narnia okay, for fair. what it is, and and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, that's and Tolkin, right. friends, right, you know, right. hey, the Tea Club, all good, <laughs> all good, Catholic gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I do hear this gets a little, and I'm sorry, you were going somewhere, and I no, 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 slashed it here. Uh, it, it, this does definitely take feminist bends mm. for sure. Oh, absolutely. And okay, all right. Absolutely, but not in an eye rolling way. And I really mean. I that. I hear there's some scenes that is eye rolling. Uh, I mean, Here's there's some speeches. There was an eye roll for me in the sense that uh, the our crowd erupted into applause. Was this during America Ferrera's speech? (laughs) I've just heard things about it. Listen, there was, I feel like, a um, a reaction from a crowd that that was uh, made me say, "All right, I mean, do we really need a standing ovation in a a theater? (laughs) This is in cans or something like that." I don't don't like that stuff anyway. So, but no, I I I really mean this, and and believe me, I tell Tom, I I tell it like it is. This is not eye rolling. This this avoids and punches on all sides it 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 is punching at feminists equally as it's punching at the the ken himbo you know uh, okay. dumb you know type of jokes that are thrown out there uh, that's what was so refreshing about this i feel the script was smart not because it was socially aware to these issues mm-hmm. it was smart because it knew how to ride the line perfectly and not dip too much into either side okay uh, and that's really how i feel about it um i can imagine that that the massive success of Barbie will only supercharge her pros- uh, her projects. Greta Gerwig, that mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So, oh, my um, God. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's great to see. I think it's well-earned. And I think in the next coming months or so, I'm going to find time to fit in Lady Bird and, um, uh, and Little Women just to get up to speed on it. I don't remember Little Women. Was Lady Bird after? Was she kind of on her rides then, Lady um, Bird? Lady Bird was 17. Little Women was 19. So um, Interesting. Okay. Both very claimed. I obviously am aware of these movies coming out. Right. But My problem is, are they acclaimed because they need to be acclaimed? Oh, now, I'm just going to be very sensitive to that. Because sure. that's where I, that's my mindset goes. I, I think more so it's uh, probably a critique you can level at those movies is more Oscar bait uh, than, right. than anything. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you. There's a reason why I haven't really seen them. So. Right, right. It'd be interesting to see. Does it hold up or is it just because we need to all like this because it's... <laughs> because of the messages and because He's we have throwing to... punches. I'm sorry. I mean, come on. I'm telling you, though, this move, Barbie... And I'm does, happy with that. That's, hey. Yeah. 
Because it, it, I like them a, as a writing team. And yeah. I liked her, but I don't, I'm the one who liked White, White Noise. Noise. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, right. I like Gerwig, actually. Yep. And Bob Box writing For in White Noise as well. Yeah, that's so funny. But yeah, uh, in Barbie, <laughs> we follow Barbie, uh, one of many Barbies in Barbie world. Uh, Margot Robbie plays stereotypical Barbie, living her best Barbie life. Uh, and when suddenly concepts like death and her place in the universe cause her to have an existential crisis uh that's kind of our setup here and that's that's the first step in the right direction that this movie makes immediately is that it's not like oh i want to get to the real world to find the 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 little girl that's playing with me or something like that imagine this film made in the 90s imagine this film made in the early 2000s it would be so dull and cliche or and, Disney movie. Yeah. Oh, sure, but like th- th- it avoids all of it. Um, this makes her stick out like a sore thumb. These these <laughs> thoughts of doom and gloom uh, in Barbie world. Uh, so she has to travel to the real world to understand her feelings and find out who's playing with her and maybe causing some of these not so good feelings. Tagging along with her is Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, a true. True, amazing performance in this. He kills it. I don't doubt it. And Ken in this feels similarly out of place. Both discover what the real world is and takes them in drastically different different kind of understandings through their thoughts about Barbie world and what Barbie world should be. I would say a lot like Oppenheimer, the cast in this is huge. There are so many extras. Oh my gosh. And so many little bit additions to characters. Like so many other Barbies and so many other Kens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if there's anything that is kind of hindsight 2020 on pairing Barbenheimer together, it's in the the, the cast is like a <laughs> who's who, like, oh, oh, spot them there and spot them right. there, you know, and enjoyable in that way. I was so. putting it on the site and I didn't know where to stop with oh, all the actors. Right. I, I was know. like, I can't have all these. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. So, uh, but... Also, my focus is squarely on the lead. Margot Robbie is excellent in this, and it really is Robbie's show. Um, uh, uh, you know, she's able to hang with these smart jokes, sell, you know, the fun character here. I mean, it's Barbie. She's she's at least initially a little ditzy yeah. until she's kind of struck with these philosophical crises. <laughs> uh, so when it, when it comes down to that, she's able to have the fun that the character is needed, but uh, is able to snap into the smart writing that is that is thrown out there with this. Something that I didn't even mention in the notes, or I have in my notes, is that, understand this is a PG-13 movie. Sure, there were kids in the theater, but this is more of a kind of a, not adult comedy, but uh, it's not meant for like little kids. It's not, and I think yeah. that maybe was sold a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. Um but it is definitely that kind of 13 and up. Yeah. It's a vibe. Yeah. And, and would you say, I mean, Margot Robbie might be top five female actresses oh. under the age of 65? <laughs> Interesting requirements. Yeah. Look I don't at, know. I mean, look at her her percentage of good performances. Mm. Even though the movies themselves, you might have some hit or misses or just like smaller sure. films here sure. or there. She is so good in everything mm-hmm. she does. Yeah. I, she's phenomenal. Absolutely. And I think she's great here. You know, she's just able to shine in every scene, whether it's fun, whether it's sad, whether it's inspirational. Yeah. She's great uh, at taking on characters. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. from her Wolf of Wall Street character to Itanya, mm, you know? Yep. 
Absolutely. But uh, easily the best part is the comedy itself. Uh, I, I, like I said, I went on a crowded Friday night. Everyone was dressed up in pink. It was like a, a Rocky Horror Picture Show style event That's that fun. people was like, you know, it was about going to the theater itself, which was awesome. And the crowd was like dying laughing. I can't say I was really like dying laughing, but <laughs> uh, I was really surprised like how just genuinely funny and how good the satire was at punching at all sides. You know, the style of comedy is like a mix of a Truman Show style satire especially mm, with the self-aware yeah, element to yeah. it and a fun like Dr. Seuss styled cartoon world and I cannot stress that it rides a perfect line with the comedy not once did it come off as overly preachy uh, like all great satires, it punches on all sides. Sure, there are plenty of jokes about Ken being an idiot man, uh, and the real world equally pokes fun at Barbie's pink-tinted perspective. Uh, you know, there is really great stuff here because Gerwig and Bombach did an excellent job in balancing jokes that aim at all sides. Mm -hmm. Um when it comes down to Ken's character specifically, that's where I feel like it is able to even punch towards the feminists and punch towards the you know the girl power element that right. may cause some eye rolls in the theater or something like that, uh, or may you know be the you know the uh, the vocal minority online really you know slamming Barbie for no good reason. When it comes down to it, Ken, when he gets back to Barbie world after. After being in the real world, he takes the real world lessons with him. And what this does to Barbie World is so genuinely funny. And what it does okay. at kind of poking fun at the the girl power feminist, you know, kind of <laughs> message of the film, it's so refreshing to see that this film could make fun of itself a little bit as much as it's making fun of everything. And that I think that's the mark of a good satire. It needs to punch in all directions. Yeah. And the biggest thing too, it sounds like it's unique as well. Oh, yeah. And it, because and well, it's just funny, punching in all directions. Just you hitting that home so much, it's just having flashbacks <laughs> you know what <laughs> yeah, yeah you know what uh, something else the internet was very upset about <laughs> uh what the hell movie was that uh don't look up don't look up yep. that's right <laughs> but the movie sounds very unique which yeah. is nice and when it could have been so cookie cutter basically mm -hmm. that's cool that you went and saw something different yeah and you were in a crowd with a good feeling a good vibe which is nice yeah these days really in theater absolutely yeah uh and that doesn't affect my judgment of the movie but it really was uh a a the crowd was alive yeah uh i can't say that for Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> people were ducking in and out of the seats just to see like oh do i actually go to the bathroom here right. i don't know oh man <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, um, I, I, I can't uh, n stress that enough. I, I really need to drive that home, though, is that, um, it, it, again, it, it just it just follows its own path and doesn't waver wow. uh, onto a, a line of, of annoying or, or anything. You've got uh, me excited. Yeah. You've got me excited. I'm telling you, Barbie is one to pay attention to. The uniqueness to. of it yeah. is nice and different and surprising. Absolutely. we don't get a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of uh, Barbie world and the real world, while she does get to the real world and spends time in the story there, it's not your typical fish out of water, like I said. Um, you know, the majority of the time in Barbie, the majority of the time is in Barbie world. 
And in lesser hands, this would have been the reverse. Uh, the reverse would have happened, and Barbie would have been getting her character arc in the real world. This movie avoids any cliches like that, and best of all, uh, spends most of the time in this ridiculous pink Barbie set. Uh, that set work is uh, probably my last highlight. Barbie World is yet another... Uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it is it is something else. It really looks like... Those Dr. Seuss movies in the 2000s, like Cat in the Hat and Grinch, that the set itself looks so intentionally cartoonish and so right. plastic and, and probably like not great to touch. Right, right. Uh, in like a hot studio. <laughs> uh, but it, here it was so refreshing because. It's used as a premise for jokes. That's where I mean it's using the toy concepts in the writing like a Lego movie does. Mm. And like a Lego movie is smart uh, by doing in that they take a look at what the toy is, how people play with the toy, what the toy means to the demographic. Right. Really and, blowing up the Barbie dollhouse. Yeah, And just exactly. getting, like, yeah, that's cool. It's all this cheap pink plastic, nothing has walls, nothing has windows, and that plays into setups for jokes very creatively. So I was just I was just in love with it. The best of all, there's no CGI used in the set works. There's mm. miniatures, there's actual Barbie toys used. Like when she gets in the car, it's like a real Barbie. Okay. Uh, felt a little bit Wes Anderson-ish. Uh, definitely the symmetry on screen felt a little Wes Anderson-ish. Uh, but uh, man, let me tell you, uh, it takes what otherwise would be Again, like uh, you make this in the 2000s, I think uh, that toy Barbie world was probably like a budget-saving device. Here, it uses it you as You can just picture it, how, how terrible and could cut it. <laughs> yeah. You really can. Exactly. So, uh, and again, I can't stress enough, best of all, there's no CGI uh, or, or, or limited huge. CGI. That's huge. Yeah, there was uh, an interview with Gerwig that I saw that apparently they wanted to make Margot Robbie's feet CGI, and I was just like, oh my oh, God. Oh God, to come across like plastic probably yeah, shiny. but yeah. oof, no thanks. And, uh, and wow. I'm glad that, I... that, you know, it uh, once again just avoided so many pitfalls, all of the pitfalls specifically that I expected and would have bet money on this film making. So you really didn't go into this with like reviews or anything like that, too? Oh, no. Good. This, no. You get me excited here, Vin. Absolutely. I have to say. Not that I was a downer on this film. Sure. I'm just coming from a spot. I've heard very good things, mm -hmm. but have heard bad things. Yeah. I've heard a little bit of Femesis things. Sure. And I think overall was feeling your thing. Uh, yeah. Your way of walking into it. Not really... Is this just going to be corporate? Or, exactly. or, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I was sensitive to the corporate aspect. You I was certainly are, sensitive yeah. to the the feminist aspect as well. But it is, I mean, don't get me wrong. It is a it is a story about feminism, but through the satire is able to. I mean, I don't want to really talk about spoilers, but equally give Ken a little bit of an arc, right. and equally give a little bit of story development to the males, if you will. That's of, good. It doesn't know, beat you. It's not pushing a message. Yeah. It's it's not beating you over the head with something. It's trying to be a good movie, yeah. first and foremost, it's trying and to, unique and cool. Yeah, it's trying to tell a story of Barbie going through an existential crisis, which <laughs> is great, you know? Honestly, though, my concerns were avoided with this. There is a brief Chevy car placement that was a bit tacky. Uh, Will Ferrell's uh, basically plays the same character as he did in the Lego movie, so... <laughs> You know, I, I don't get me wrong. There are small critiques that I have, but like they clone Tyrone, I feel the package was so unique. the The experience was so 
driven home that uh, I really, I, I, it, it, they were minor points. They were, they were nothing that um, was holding it back sub- for you. Yeah, yeah there was yeah. nothing substantial there. This could have been so corporate or so bad or so eye rolling or so anything, but instead it rides the line perfectly. And I have to give it props for being one of the most unique comedies of the year and certainly one of the best. We're going to go ahead and give Barbie an 80 on the dot. Wow, what a good week. I'm telling you it was a good week. An 80. Oh, an man, 80. I bet you had no thought of walking I, uh, out of there with an 80. Right. It was, it was, so, it was such a good wow. time. So smart. Wow. Uh, I mean, yeah. I got to go see it this weekend then. Yeah. I almost saw it by myself last night. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm very upset I didn't know. <laughs> I think I would have been upset if you did. You're going into but, Barbie, you got to go, you go oh, by yourself in the Barbie. Oh, you didn't go by yourself? No. Oh. You got to go with at least some pink on you. I would have went. I would have went. <laughs> wow, 80% for Barbie. Okay, I mean, we're doing okay with comedies this year. I think we have actually have a slew. Of- yeah. At the end of the year, we might actually have a little bit, a uh, little nest there. And definitely before the end of the year, I want to try to do like a Joe Dapatow type of Oh, you were uh, saying study. that, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what, wow. The Wild Bunch, Barbie, these are huge shocks. Yeah. I cannot, it's a good week. I can't believe you gave it an 80. It's a good, I told you it was a good week. I'm telling you, this <laughs> This also couldn't be farther than the Crimes of the Future episode of how dark and, and dystopian that oh was. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> but similar quality that I was just so in love with almost all of the films. You wow. Know, uh, and here, definitely in love with all the films. 80% for Barbie. I got to watch it. I have to watch it. You didn't even <laughs> give What's-Its-Face that, that much... And eighty percent. What? But it covers both sides. The comedy. Oh, oh! Uh, don't look up. Yeah, don't look up. You well, no. Yeah. Don't look up wasn't as funny as Barbie. I think you gave that like a seventy. I don't know, high seventies. No. Yeah, it's fantastic. It. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Good week. Good week so far. Good week. All right, Barbie. Let's go, Barbie. We're gonna keep let's on going go. here <laughs> for the big explosive film here. Big three hours on the dot. Let's get into it right away. This is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Vin. I'm sure you saw it at IMAX. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> Sigh of relief. <laughs> I was fully planning on, on going to see it. it. It didn't work out. I couldn't go see it. Very upset about it. But <laughs> Very upset. I think I have two movies to go see this week now. Because yeah. I've got to go see Barbie this week. You weekend should do now. the double feature. I think I'm a fool. Five hours. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I did not do the double feature. Uh, if that robs me of some credibility, no, I apologize. Don't worry about it. I apologize, but was already going to see Oppenheimer on Saturday. Now this weekend, so oh, I gotta nice. add Barbie. But regardless, excellent Oppenheimer. Let's get into it. How do we tackle it? How'd you like it? Uh, well, let's let's start with just a little bit of the hype train, and and I feel like. Oppenheimer, it's such a a colossal movie, and I mean, it's a lot to grapple with yeah. in so many different ways to grapple with it. I'm just going to kind of be fluid with my thoughts and, and, and kind of go through it, and I want to start with that hype train uh, that pulled up with this. Um, after Nolan's uh, aspirations to bring the theater back with Tenet and, and what largely flopped, it felt like the teaser of Oppenheimer was already being played before movies. Like, it felt like that that autumn after Tenet, like Oppenheimer was already being teased mm, with that counter countdown, you know, whatever. Right, right. The cast was so so extensive. The subject matter had such gravitas to it, and all of it supercharged by the internet long before Barbenheimer was even coined. Uh, I feel like um, Nolan has a very definitive following online of just lovers of his films, and I can't say I hate on that because I love Nolan's films as well. Yeah, I can understand when people critique him and they don't like certain aspects how loud his films are 
this is not escaping that. This is a very loud film. Uh, but uh, it really is. I mean, the internet hype machine has been brewing for Oppenheimer for ha- such a long time. It has been. And I think, like, seriously for the past year at least, mm-hmm. where it's just been, it has been openly talked about a lot. Yeah. Uh, as, and as far as this year, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and folks, believe the hype because Oppenheimer is stellar. Uh, I'm a little bit conflicted. Uh, on its role as a story versus a biographical film or a biopic. I do have a slight personal bias with this. Oppenheimer has been a historical figure that I've been fascinated with ever since writing a paper on him back in another life in college. Mm. <laughs> what feels like another <laughs> life now. So I'm, I'm very aware of all aspects of this story and where it goes. And, and, and why I bring this up is because I was a little bit concerned that was my love of this film skewed in that type of way because Mm. I was recognizing the slew of characters that are thrown in without a lot of explanation, especially government characters in this. I feel that could go either way. Yes, I feel Mm -hmm. like you just in the know can Mm -hmm. connect to it better. Mm -hmm. I feel like it also, you, you walking into the movie, it could hurt it you knowing so much about the story already. Oh, sure. Yeah, it definitely could have gone both ways. You know? Um, so, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very curious of what someone that literally doesn't know anything about Oppenheimer thinks of this film, especially in, like, the last hour or so. Right. But um, Oppenheimer himself is a poetically tragic man whose history is in two directions, before and after the bomb. Nolan actually reflects this in his story presentation and editing here, which we will touch on in a little bit. But for a biopic, which side do you show? The scientific breakthroughs and the war effort leading up to the atomic bomb or the decades of political destabilization that comes from atomic weapons existing? Nolan undoubtedly chooses the correct answer, and you show both. That's where you get the three-hour film. (laughs) For the audience to understand why Oppenheimer is such a tragic and tortured figure through history, we have to see how his invention warped the world around it, and in addition to his brilliance creating it. So this brings up the three-hour runtime. Circling back to feeling conflicted, that last hour of the film becomes so heavy in political and legal plot threads that I just wonder if it will not only lose someone not familiar with the history, but also be almost deliberately confusing of how many characters and many actors show up, feel like they have importance, but really are just one piece in Oppenheimer's story. Mm, Um, Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know. I'm just very curious uh, of, of what the type of experience of that will be. Like that as well, like with Barbie, I noted, it is about Oppenheimer directly. Um, there's a big cast here, but focus and then even my kind of critical analysis of it, it's about Oppenheimer here. And uh, Killian Murphy does an, a wonderful job. I feel that if he doesn't get the Oscar for this, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, the talk around it, now yeah. the in execution and the actors now coming out talking about I mean what Robert Downey Jr. saying that he's never seen another actor sacrifice as much as he saw mm. Killian Murphy wow. you know he didn't go to dinners with all the actors when they were filming because mm-hmm. it was just like the weight on his shoulders to get this character right in filming sure, so sure. he just like avoided the dinners and he just was in his own mindset. Wow. Uh, I hear total dedication to to trying to get this character right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's nothing more than brownie points, but, boy, does he really look like the father of the atomic bomb. I mean, Oppenheimer's a creepy dude, especially Ah. uh, post-World War II. He becomes very gaunt. 
He yeah. becomes check uh, out some YouTube videos. Yeah. Almost, which is, I mean, uh, uh, I got to be honest, I always found him to be cool for that reason. Yeah. You know, that was my you know surface level uh, uh, fascination with him. <laughs> I mean, talk about a role made for an actor. Uh, Killian has always had this type of aesthetic to him, this uh, this gauntness to him. I, I think Nolan knew he wanted to do this film for like a long time mm. and always had Killian kind of in the back of his mind. That's great. Yeah. That's great. And talk about a culmination of their partnership over the years uh, as well. Always, uh, yeah. Scared Crow. He was in um, uh, Inception, of course. Um, Dunkirk. Yep, absolutely, yep. absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some of the editing and story structure, though, because I think it's it's really where Nolan shines in this. Um, Nolan is no stranger to illustrating structure in his movies. This is probably his trademark. If we did a, a full a full study, but in in my head, two thousands Memento is probably the best example of this. That there mm. is a meta structure to how the story plays out and shown through his editing and, and what scenes were shown. If I had to take a stab at the structure of this film, only seeing it once, um, here's where the <laughs> the food analogy comes in. I'd I'd almost call the editing like a spiral or an onion with the atomic bomb being the center point of it. Um, now, strategically, the story jumps around his life, f- first showing us some of the earliest, but also the latest moments of his life, if you will, the onion, the outer layer of the onion, or okay. the outer layer of the spiral. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're good. <laughs> uh, but as the film progresses... These time jumps and the intensity of the plot increases as we draw closer and closer to the bomb. The closer we get to seeing the Manhattan Project, the more we are seeing events immediately following its completion, the inner oh, layer of the saying. onion and the spiral. I see what Does you're that make saying. sense? Yeah, it, it's... I'm, I'm throwing it out there. That's, okay. that's my genuine thoughts on it. I have no idea if that's true to Nolan's plan or his actual intention in the structure, but... Uh, that's how we're shown events. It's earliest and latest, and as we're getting closer and closer, we're seeing the events it's immediately like two before ends. It's like after. you stretch out a rubber band, yeah. and you have the two ends mm-hmm. is what you're seeing, and then as you snap it back and release it, it's just mm-hmm. getting closer and closer to those two ends. Absolutely. And the center point being, of course, the it. the, the, defi- exactly, <laughs> the defining feature of, of Oppenheimer's life. I so. like that, and it's still – I have to say because – I was like, how is he really going to mess with time <laughs> yeah. in this one? What is Nolan going to do to really mess up the clock? Even yeah. though there's obviously a ticking clock in the film. <laughs> yeah. it's, that's not good enough for Nolan. No, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's how he kind of does it. Okay. Absolutely. I like it. And I think it's brilliant because though The Last Hour still is a lot of that political and legalese, and it's a lot, I enjoyed it. Yeah. But I feel like it is it gives that side energy where... If in the wrong mm. hands, in the wrong execution, that would be the uh, the kryptonite, an hour long courtroom scene, which you can uh, hate. Yeah, exactly, and then it would, it would just kill the momentum. And I don't care how tragic they would make it; it's just it would just kill the momentum of the film. So true, so, especially for how Nolan likes to build his endings. You know, the rising, you know, Hans Zimmer score. It's, it's such yada. a great. It's so true. Three hours, such a great layering technique. Yeah, absolutely, to keep everybody just still there, still yeah. engaged. So we got tension lasagna for Mission Impossible. We got the onion for Nolan. <laughs> I, I will say, I don't know if the onion <laughs> metaphor works. Okay. You you like spiral? It has to be spiral almost. Oh, okay. Well, an onion is peeling of layers. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about, that's not what you're talking about. Oh, uh, well, in the sense that uh, the events of earliest and latest that the story is tackling yeah. are tackled first. And then as we're getting closer, we're experiencing events 
closer right before and immediately after okay. to, you know, okay, all right. the Manhattan Project itself. All right, I'm so, there. So maybe spot. <laughs> <laughs> we'll throw out the food analogy. Sorry. Sorry, Glenn and Carol. <laughs> uh, my interpretation of the structure aside, though, editing is the real highlight here. Um, it completely avoids any pitfalls of being a soulless... Uh, empty biopic by the books you know this could have just been build up to the to the manhattan project and then you know uh the the what what is happening after in in um oppenheimer's life and really had me thinking back to the highlights of the Inaritu study that mm-hmm. you can take a a, a a straightforward story and it's all in how you present it specifically Babel, i think would be the right uh, an example of that or, or 21 grams um it's all in the execution of uh, the editing style and nolan is clock in on this. Um, if there's anything easing that three-hour runtime, it's a kind of rhythm that scenes all have. Half of that is because of these editing choices, and the other half is in an ever-present soundtrack that uh, plays nearly over every scene. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's it's the sound. It's the score. Oh, okay. Uh, that is just played constantly because the Dunkirk thing. is just the, his ticking. Right. 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 Yeah. It's the ticking of, the, of his watch. Yeah. I, Which it, I don't it, normally mind with him. No, I, I think that's why both like, of us are a fan of Nolan. Yeah. If there is something levied as a critique of all of his films, though, is just how loud and how scenes are not left in silence. Right. He right. Always is adding in these bombastic scores. Um, previously with Hans Zimmer. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Not not Zimmer this one. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but exciting. Uh, continuing their partnership from. Tenet, Ludwig Gorison uh, does an excellent job in composing the score for this film and might even beat out his work on The Mandalorian, which, uh, if anyone knows me, is, uh, is, is near and dear to my heart. I really like Gorison's work <laughs> on that. Uh, Gorison does borrow some, some motifs from Dunkirk, uh, incorporates that ticking clock into the music. Oh, okay, and there you go. Works in a lot of the score, works in a lot of the scenes. But uh, best of all, he introduces a foreboding radiation crackle in a similar way, increasing as the project looms closer and closer to completion. So don't get me wrong, I think the soundtrack is incredible. It was one of the best moments for me. Listening back in my note writing process, mm, I yeah. put very, a lot of specific tracks aside just to revisit. I think it's dynamite, but this problem is on steroids for the people that don't like Nolan. If, it's, if it doesn't hit for you already. Yeah, I feel like if you don't like beware. Nolan already because of these elements of how loud his movies are and how, um, you know, uh, they don't let scenes breathe, this is going to be a terrible experience for you, honestly. Wow, do you, do you know those people that straight up just, like, don't really like them? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I do, and um, I can also understand it. I personally like it, right. but uh, I can definitely understand it that um, hmm. it's it's the same thing that I say with Razzle Dazzle. It's uh, ultimately a distraction of performances, mm-hmm. I feel, mm-hmm. is what the critique is after. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the problem here is that every... Every single scene, almost to the point of being ridiculous, cannot be left alone more than a two-minute stretch. Right. There is music playing over this constantly. It's a three-hour music video. Uh, and granted, uh, that, that it's not licensed lot. songs. It's this beautiful score that Gorson is 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 structurally aware of right. and is aware of whatever type of meta structure that Nolan is making in these editing processes. Boy, is it you're not left yeah. alone with these characters. <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say personally, I think the ends justify the means. Uh, the result is a snappier pace to a 3-hour mm. film. 
uh, which is well needed <laughs> in in a movie about scientists talking in rooms. <laughs> so maybe that's that's the right call. But uh, it was just very noticeable, and I just feel like uh, critics of that loud style, even if you're not, I feel it's going to be noticed in this. One okay, then, if okay. that makes sense. Beyond that, I don't have much more I want to say. I think there are some cast surprises in this that need to be experience on their own both for who shows up and the performances that are knocked out of the park in this i will say without a doubt this is a career performance for killian murphy like i said and would be shocked if he does not get the oscar for this my final thoughts are i would call this film great because of the gravitas it treats the subject matter with as it's as it's said in the film this is the culmination of three centuries worth of physics. It treats concepts like the revolution in physics, quantum mechanics, and the sheer impossibility of pulling off this project with wonder and amazement, while it equally reflects on how the history itself was warped around Oppenheimer's creation, yet leaves him in a limbo of renown and infamy. We're going to go ahead and give Oppenheimer an 84. Oh no! no. <laughs> you thought it was gonna be. I thought it was. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I Eighty four though. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a week this good. I think so. As far I, that's as what scores. I was saying. Three eighties. The other two in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? It's a big boy week. Why not the eighty five or above? I think runtime, and I think a little bit of uh, of uh, the rule for me for eighty five and above is I watch it twice, um, and I just was simply not able to watch this twice. Um, I, in addition to concerns of, I think this might lose a lot of people once that last hour comes around. Okay, it's just it plays out like a biography. To a laser point, right, right. Uh, so, okay, no, no, I, I like that. It, you, you would never say just because it's three hours, I didn't get a chance to get around to watching it a second time. Uh, no, no. Like I, if you really wanted to watch it a second time, but just like couldn't make it because it's three hours, and maybe I didn't want to. But <laughs> that's not saying that this is uh, anything bad. I mean, obviously that eighty-five is a threshold for us, but I mean, this is a phenomenal. It's movie. A more of this can sit where it's you watch it once, yeah, stays with you. It's good for a bit. You'll, you'll pick it up a little after. I I mean, it is a monumental movie. Yeah. That's for sure. Absolutely. Wow. 84% for Oppenheim. Uh, this is fantastic. You had a good theater. <laughs> I told you. You had a good theater run this weekend. It was it was a great week. Believe the hype wow. for Barbenheimer. What day did you see this? Uh, I saw this on Sunday. when uh, You did? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I can't wait. Maybe I'll give a quick report when I, after uh, yeah, this weekend. Absolutely. I'm sorry I couldn't I get it watched, but I mean, we're running along anyway. Would have been <laughs> right. <laughs> adding to it. What? Um, looking at these scores, Vin, is there any last notes? Any? Oh, wait a second. What am I saying? <laughs> I can't let you go until we talk about Matt Damon a smidge. <laughs> oh, right. Is Matt Damon uh, going to ruin the movie for me? No. For our, the shoes. Are our, our both concerned of Matt Damon looking a little bit cringy uh, from yeah. trailers? Yeah. Definitely cut out. There's uh, there's actually uh, was a good amount of trailers that is just not shown in the films. Good. Like extra footage. I knew, I feel like Chris Nolan really has a uh, a hold on how his trailers look. Yep. And that, that's what I was hoping for. Absolutely. So uh, Thank God even he knew what was going yeah, on with Matt Damon yeah. in those scenes. And, that, that's and, the best news of it all. <laughs> I can breathe. <laughs> right, right. Because it was something about that that one line he gives in the trailer. Like, way too Martian. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, <laughs> way it's, too Martian. Way too like, yeah. easy. You're on a Nolan set now. Yeah, yeah, but I would say again, if there is anything to actually seeing 
Barbenheimer, the double feature, it's in how the cast is used in both of these. Yeah. They're both very singular to one performance, but they're also huge as far as cast. And like the supporting cast is amazing. And honestly, and what a fun, and for how unique these stories are, how Mm -hmm. different, like this is the most wild double feature, well, double header (laughs) you could do. This is the most like, (laughs) the most wild. Yeah. Yeah. I I love it, Vin. It was, some of these movies were very long. Appreciate you watching all these movies. Appreciate, no more other notes. Or do you want to no, no, I'm okay. good to go. Uh, okay, well, we'll just pick things right back up next week. No, actually, mm, next week yes. we have had... Special in the holster for... <laughs> we have been dying to... to <laughs> when should we release this special? Uh, we love this special. This yep. is so much research went into this one for mm-hmm. uh, for Vin, folks. Enjoy it next week. Uh, Vin's going to be out of town. It is still great, new, fresh content. And honestly, it might be one of the better shows of the year Absolutely. just because it went into it and kind of kind of the guide of the watching list that we give Vin thank you so much for watching these thanks for stopping by here thanks for these great scores folks at home we will run it down one more time we have High Noon with a 70% The Wild Bunch with an 82 They Clone Tyrone with a 74 Barbie with an 80 and finally Oppenheimer with an 84%. Folks, we thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the special next week, and then we will see you back here at the Daily Ratings Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you would, give us a good rating or tell a friend about us. If you're wondering if a film is worth the watch, or if you'd just like to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com, where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you see from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, folks, but we want to be independent from those corporate sponsors, so we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.